0: The Self-Aware Leader Chapter 3 Seeing Your Past My mother died suddenly when I was almost 10 years old. My life turned upside down. One day she came home from the doctor with a diagnosis of leukemia. Seven days later she disappeared to her bedroom and extended family was called in. I only saw her once more during the next three days because the disease's emancipating effects were clear. That visit was my last image of her as I awoke two days later on Sunday morning to the sounds of her taking her last gasp of breath. It seemed to happen as quickly as this paragraph could be read. One minute she was here, the next she was gone. The shock and grief made home tense at times, which is only normal. Food lost its taste. Routines weren't routines anymore. My sister, dad, and I had to find a way forward as a family. My dad, a pastor, was a strong help during those days of loss and pain, even as he faced his own grief. Those who have grieved deeply know that the emptiness comes and goes like waves. Some days were better than others. Even years later, grieving never truly ends. It just takes on different hues. Mom's passing left me with a choice. Move toward a deeper Christian faith amid the grief or shake my fist at God for what I was going through. My early adolescent years nurtured fresh abandonment to Jesus and awareness that each day was to be savored and lived to its fullest, not for personal achievement or the applause of others, but for its God-honoring quality and opportunity. I understood that each season of life sets lessons before us that we are to learn and that life is a blip on the timeline of eternity. Another outcome of mom's passing was a persistent loneliness that was my companion throughout my adolescence and into my adult years. It wasn't constant, but it could suddenly overwhelm me for a day. Some days I pursued it, my artsy personality relishing its gray and melancholy ways. Or, if I'm honest, the lonely feelings provided a way to still feel my loss. I could be in a crowd of people or on a sunny family bike ride and still feel a lonely isolation that weighed me down. Everyone around seemed holographic and distant, like moving shadows on walls, and I had disappeared into a world of confusion, like Frodo putting on the ring. This chapter deals with our past, a persistent blind spot for Christian leaders. We all have gone through success, failure, pain, and joy that have reinforced or pushed us in particular directions. The social and mental scripts and frameworks we use for dealing with those moments have given emotional and behavioral shape to our social lives. Where did we learn how to respond to adversity or celebrate with others? How did we learn how to show affection, handle success, make friends, be part of a group, or participate in social functions? What role have our experiences played in developing our personalities? Some of you have experienced deep pain, abuse, and other hurtful situations. You already know the pain. It is not a blind spot. There are many good resources and counselors who can help, and I prayerfully encourage you to turn to them before moving ahead here. To be clear, this chapter does not minimize those hurtful realities, but rather focuses on the social side of our past and the way it affects our present ministry, like going back to high school. Meg Greenfield was a longtime Washington, D.C. columnist and editor. In the final two years of her life, she wrote a memoir, which wasn't published until after her death, about her work and the government. In the book, Washington, she shared how surprised she was at the similarities between the social dynamics of the U.S. government and those found in a local high school. That doesn't give us much political confidence, perhaps, and may answer more than a few questions we've had about government— but it illustrates how powerful the patterns learned in high school can be, even for those asked to lead a powerful country. Yet, we don't talk about it much. Who really wants someone to tell them they make choices and interact with others like a high schooler? Yet, how many times have you heard someone, even those well-advanced in age, share that they're still trying to figure out what they want to do in life when they grow up? And how often do conversations in board meetings begin to reflect high school lunchrooms? Problems and patterns from the past show up in various ways, and not just in Washington. Harry was an itinerant speaker, traveling along as a guest speaker with large groups on summer mission trips. One week, he went on a trip with four church groups. Each day, the groups would go out on several projects, and Harry would get to spend time with the students on the trip. At night, he'd speak as part of a program and be available for any pastoral counseling. It was all going very well until one of the older pastors pulled him aside. Harry, the pastor from Alabama, said, I want to talk with you privately about something. This already sounded ominous. I've noticed that you're spending most of your time with a few of my more popular students. Harry flinched as the pastor continued. In fact, I've watched you. Wherever Meg, Deb, and Jake go, you're not too far away. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it did catch my attention, and I wanted to privately let you know. At first, Harry was stunned and a bit angry that this stranger was bringing this stuff up. Megan was stunning and easily the most popular young woman on the trip because of it. Deb and Jake were just so fun to be around. Harry felt alive when he was with them and Megan, like he was young again. Harry began to realize that he had an opportunity to share with this wise and caring pastor. He smiled ruefully and asked, Can I talk with you? I mean, really talk? Harry shared that he had been noticing how this past was affecting his current ministry, that God had been showing him this recently. Speaking to teens gave Harry a platform. He enjoyed the laughs and loved the affirmation of seeing God work in their lives. Hanging around students when not on the stage was the problem, however. Just as happened in high school, his insecurities kick in as he wondered what the teens were thinking of him up close. He wanted to feel accepted, and the fact that pretty and popular students like Megan paid attention to him fueled his sense of self-worth and made him feel good as a young man. And sometimes, if he was honest, he felt himself attracted to Megan and others like her on the trips. He was careful about how he acted around the teens, but he knew his thoughts, and he knew how they made him feel. It was clear that Harry had to address this area. Grateful that someone had taken a step to carefully confront him, he promised to spend time with all of the teens on the trip. He and the pastor crafted a plan for Harry to prayerfully explore with his wife and a counselor what was going on in this area. A year later, Harry gave up his speaking ministry and took a lead pastor position at a church, and he is thriving in that role to this day. Before we judge Harry, let's admit that we all have past memories and experiences that shape our current preferences and practices. It may be more than insecurity that we're attracted to people we are supposed to be ministering to. The research on extended adolescence suggests that we arrive at ministry in our 20s with some unfinished business regarding our identity, sense of purpose, and maybe other deeper issues. Developmental expert Lawrence Steinberg and others say that young adults in the workforce, including vocational ministry, are still developing and preparing for adulthood. Our past holds significant blind spots that influence why we make some of our choices, work toward particular goals, and make preferences among our relationships. And most leaders do not seek pastors or mentors to help them work through those areas. The problems are carried well into adulthood. An easy way to recognize how the past intersects with our present is to pay attention to why we avoid certain people or places. Some of us talk too much about our past, reminding everyone of historical successes. Others want to avoid thinking about it altogether, and most of us are unaware of the effect that our growing up days had on us, and perhaps still do. We are shaped by our past, but not fully aware of how powerful it can be. In the rest of this chapter, we will get a biblically-based glimpse of struggles with the past and then address reasons for our responses so we're not stuck relating and leading like we did in high school. God is interested in redeeming your past. One of my favorite scenes in Scripture shows Moses standing in front of a bush on fire, but not being consumed, and God is speaking from the center of the bush. Moses was leaning on a well-worn wooden staff. God asked Moses to lay it down, and let it drop to the dust before him, to surrender the staff, which had been his support for his work as he navigated the countryside. It's his protection, his instrument of work, his identity as one who tended to animals. Moses was at the bush because he had run away. He had stepped out of an Egyptian palace one day to walk among his people, the Hebrews. He caught sight of a Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian, Moses may have seen the moment he could be used by God to rescue the Israelites. He attacked and killed the Egyptian, but the Israelites did not share his redemptive perspective on his leadership role. Moses fled into the wilderness, started a family, and took up a life of obscurity working for his father-in-law, Jethro. It was a long period of following sheep before Moses came to the burning bush. God was about to set Moses on a new mission to confront Pharaoh and lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But now, in front of the great I am, his past, with its memories, disappointment, fears, and guilt, came flooding back. Woven throughout Scripture are regular reminders that we are to let go of the past. We are reminded that God wants to forgive, restore, and redeem our lives for his purposes. Like Moses, we come to moments where our past floods into our present. We don't know Moses' thoughts there in the wilderness But it's likely he revisited the murder scene and remembered again the failed dream of rescuing the Israelites from Egypt's rule. His concern about his poor communication skills may reflect that moment when his inability to explain his mission meant he left Egypt for decades. The man who was once full of confidence stood crushed and insecure under his memories. He stood in front of the I Am who was ready to use Moses to realize that dream again, but under new management. Let's leave Moses there in front of God as we look at another biblical model. I mentioned Paul's statement about forgetting the past and pressing on, Philippians 3.13. But this statement doesn't mean that Paul never thought about the past, nor does it mean that he wasn't shaped by his past. At the Church of Galatia, he used his past stories to give context for his current grace-oriented ministry. He describes the value of seeing our past from God's perspective because God has a history of wanting to do new things that are ways out of the barren places in our past and present lives. In several sermons and speeches, Paul describes his history before and after his conversion with Christ. And to fill in some of the gaps in Paul's past, God guides Luke to describe them in the book of Acts. The best way to describe God's approach to our past is that God wants us to remember the work that he has done in our past. Search for the word remember in the Bible and notice its purpose. But we cannot let our past impede the present work of God. And we need to take seriously the new creation work that God has done in our lives and accept the old has passed away. Despite our desire to be comfortable, we develop spiritual maturity and perseverance through the trials, pain, and temptations of life. Through the pains of our past, God seeks to develop spiritual maturity in the present, resulting in our knowing Him intimately, becoming like Him, and serving Him. For those of us who have been hanging on to the guilt for many years, this is perhaps the most difficult. We all regret past behavior and thoughts that we wish we could go back and correct, but we can't. We also can't carry these into the future. Today is the day to let go and realize that God offers His forgiveness and restoration. There is no longer any condemnation or accusation. This is the wonder that Jesus brought to those weighed down by the religiosity of the Pharisees, Jesus offered redemption and forgiveness, not a constant reminder of how people didn't measure up. He was the new standard, not the law. He first offered love. When people like the woman caught in adultery and Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, their experience wasn't accusation, but redemption. With Jesus, they named the wrongs in their past, confessed, and found freedom to move on. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, gleefully paid back all that he had taken and more, in an obedient act of contrition. The woman stood from the dust, no stones coming down on her head. In advance, each understood the message Jesus would leave with his disciples on that last evening before his death. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Let's go back to Moses standing in front of God. The burning bush story is very familiar, but I love the way it's depicted in the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt. In that movie, the voice asks Moses to pick up the staff. When Moses does, the voice then says, With this staff you will do my wonders. That's what we do in ministry. We lay down our lives with our history, memory, and pain, and we let God's forgiveness and grace do their cleansing work. Then God commands us to go, and with our lives and gifts we will do His wonders. And wonders we will see as people put their trust in Christ, as they grow in that trust, and as they, in turn, minister in the lives of others. A Clear View of the Past In my coaching of younger leaders, I've discovered four blind spots from the past common to those in ministry leadership. You may be tempted to skim over them lightly. Don't. Linger a bit on each, asking God for clarity and allowing time to reflect and consider each. While you do, remember that God wants to redeem your past and even use it for His work and glory. Drive for Popularity Harry's story is just one of many that show us the desire to be popular is not often quenched once we leave school. If we aren't careful, it can consume us, even into our retirement years. We want to fit in. We want to be accepted. And we want to be noticed. I remember talking with my three kids about the opinions of others. No matter how eloquent I was, they chose what to wear, how to style their hair, and how to spend their free time in relation to what others at school were doing. Despite the stereotype that teens want to express individuality, on the high school campus we see the athletes, popular girls, and other subgroups all dress in similar fashion. At a time when individual expression is cherished, conformity won the struggle. Only after graduation do many students recognize how susceptible they were to the influence of their peers. Is it that different for us as adults? Certainly, we rely on others' opinions to make us feel good about what we do and who we are. Social media, which most of us use, is built on the desire to be well-liked or well-followed. Are we satisfied with serving God where He has us, or do we seek a bigger audience in some way? If you attend any major Christian conference, you can probably identify those who are trying to be popular. They aren't just there to develop professionally— they are there to be known and affirmed by peers and by those in influential positions in particular. Henry Newen says the desire to be popular is a temptation common to Christian leaders. He says we are tempted to make a difference for Jesus and are tempted to be popular, spectacular, and relevant. But Jesus wants his followers to be different. Our desire to be great or popular is to be replaced by a spirit of servanthood and sacrifice. He challenged those who were drawn to his popularity. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Luke 9:23-25. 23-25 There is a subtler response to popularity, one that is less easily recognized but has the same proud rooting. We can condemn and avoid the popular people, withdrawing, well, protecting ourselves really, from putting ourselves out there. Some of us learned in our teenage years to shun the popular crowd, either because of thinking that we were in some way superior to them, or feeling awkward to be with them, and we still do it in adulthood. We protect ourselves from social harm and discomfort, and in an unfortunate blend of pride and insecurity. Little communities of criticism are formed that take aim at the popular and successful. So we must guard against either seeking popularity ourselves or looking negatively at those who travel in those circles. The burden of past relationships. From our past to right now, we've developed strong patterns and preferences for social interaction. The people you were drawn to in your youth are likely the kinds of people you will be comfortable with in adulthood. The people who intimidated you in high school likely do the same in adulthood. The types of people you didn't like in high school may also pose difficulties for you as an adult. This may seem implausible to you, but I've seen pastors hesitant to work with confident, driven business people in their churches because of adolescent-like insecurity. I've seen people in ministry avoid different community groups because the social dynamics scared them. I've watched people in ministry avoid youth who were the kind they avoided during high school. Some of us know that we avoid certain settings because we don't want to see a person from our past, and some avoid events because we don't want to meet people we've had conflicts with. See chapter 7. Self-check. Here are three practices to help you reduce the desire for popularity. First, develop a deep thirst for understanding your identity in Christ by studying Scripture. Through God's Word, we see ourselves as He does and understand that He transforms our lives. And that's the greatest confidence builder we can have. The letter to the Colossians provides a powerful story of who Christ is, who he makes us to be, and how we are to live. Second, listen for thoughts about yourself that begin with, I always or I am just, and listen to how you finish them. To challenge yourself, start with a page in your journal and write 50 answers to those phrases. As you look at the list, how many of the items are comparative? Are rooted in gaps? between the popular or unpopular people and you, and how many are unfounded self-judgments. Finally, reflect on your interaction with crowds. Make a list of your interactions in groups for the past week. Ask yourself and God how often you felt good because popular groups paid attention to you. How often did you feel hurt because someone ignored a comment you made? How often did you see interactions as ways to make you feel better rather than ways to make someone else feel better? Emmy Rose, a friend of mine, avoided a campus where she had previously worked because she didn't want to run into Jean. Jean had been responsible for a process that cost Emmy Rose and several of her co-workers their jobs. After eight or nine years, well-established in a new career, Emmy Rose discovered she had to get away from Jean for an event on campus. Emmy Rose realized that it was time to let God heal the pain of the past. The two women talked briefly, Emmy Rose acknowledging how much she had been annoyed with Jean. The two never became friends, but they acknowledged the healing that God had done, and Emmy Rose was comfortable on the campus thereafter. You and I are called to minister to others with a newfound freedom from the past. Self-check. The following are three practices that can help us find that freedom. First, Go back to the list of interactions from the last week. Who do you seek out, avoid, or wish to spend time with? After thinking about past relationships, do you see any patterns? Where do those patterns come from? How might the Holy Spirit want to work in your life in a new way? Second, make a list of two or three names of people you are avoiding. You can ask God to help you with this. In a couple of sentences, write why you are avoiding them and and then suggest what kind of freedom you would find by making peace in these relationships. Third, if you recognize an issue, perhaps you react to something and you know it comes from an incident in your past, talk with a trusted godly friend, life coach, or a counselor about how to resolve it. Fourth, celebrate the relationships you do have. Ask God for a couple ways to deepen your present relationships to keep them healthy. Past Performances Occasionally, I like to watch Napoleon Dynamite, an old and odd movie depicting very rural high school life in the Western Plains states of America. A few scenes show Uncle Rico videotaping himself throwing a football while recounting his football days. He always bragged that if he could go back in time, he would win the state championship. Visit any major sporting event at your local high school and you'll see adults like Uncle Rico reliving their glory days. Ministry is not an extension of your high school experiences. It is not an opportunity to live out your youth again through the lives of another. It is not a platform for you to share your story with others or merely an opportunity to steer others from the mistakes you've made by talking at length about your failures. It is focused on others and their stories in the present, helping them love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and might. It is about seeing them grow to greater Christian maturity, and faithfulness to what Jesus would have them think, say, and do. If you are living your present ministry based on or bound by your successes and failures in the past, you are being shaped by a blind spot. But this isn't just about the past of five years ago. You are right now creating a reputation that will be your past five years from now. If we are living in the past, our present will be of little benefit to the future. I want to give you three cautionary examples of ways that you are currently shaping your future past. First, social media has made hiring potential leaders a bit easier for interview committees. By the time someone shows up for an interview, committee members may have read through years of status updates, photos, and comments to guess what kind of person the candidate was and maybe is. I feel like I'm stating the obvious here, but you need to be very careful what you do and say online. It reflects who you are, who you want to be, and what you value. Second, be aware of the volatile nature of pranks. an adolescent practice, pranks have little or no place in Christian ministry leadership. Pranks aren't practiced by community leaders, and those of us in Christian ministry are community leaders. In the last year, I have heard three stories from ministry leaders I know well who thought pranking or extreme horseplay would be fun. The police were called in all three instances, and injuries required hospitalization in two of them. Once the stories were leaked to the community, the responses were collective. What were they thinking? Boards, committees, and supervisors have problems knowing how to work with maturity problems that surface in young leaders. Please understand that ministries committed to developing Christ-like maturity in their people can't tolerate poor decision patterns in their leaders. Finally, How a person handles discomfort is telling. In our culture, we are emotionally wired for happiness and work hard to protect and sustain our good feelings. In the face of discomfort, we whine, complain, and work to avoid problems or others. Mature leaders can function despite discomfort, and they stick to a job until it is finished. They can put up with unpleasantness and frustration. They give more than it is asked, help without prompting, and make independent decisions. I have an axiom. Having good people solves many problems. I remember commenting about a young Christian worker I had hired. I just like the choices he makes. Only two years into vocational ministry, he was showing good intuition. We demonstrate our intuition by the choices we make. If the past is adversely influencing how we act in public, then we need to see the patterns before it's too late. Self-check. The following are three practices to help you think about the past performance blind spot. First, what stories of your past have you told in the past week? Are you still trying to be the person you were then? Or are the stories becoming stories of what God is doing? Second, look back through your Facebook or Instagram feeds for the last week. If someone had to write a description of your values based only on those words, pictures, and shares, what story would they tell? Are you happy with that story? How would you change it? Third, how is God calling you to use your life choices to guide the lives of people you are leading? What are two good changes you have seen in your life that are an example for others? Past wounds. I've kept this practice for last because it can be the most tender, and I want to ease into it. I talked earlier about my running career. Runners cultivate a stride based on the unique structure of their bones. Ligaments and muscles All of which are shaped by their genetics Our strides are all different They are perfectly adapted to us But sometimes we are injured So we change our stride and keep running If we keep running without figuring out the nature of the injury And seeking healing We can do permanent damage to ourselves Because our stride places stress on parts of our legs Or hips or back not made to support running Stopping to diagnose the reason for the limp is critical. A runner with a blister has a different problem from a runner with a fracture. It's likely that you may be carrying some pain in your life. Some of these may be wounds from your past. Regrets, loss, abuse, mistakes, misjudgments, bad relationships, and so on. The wounds of our lives often exist where our past intersects with our hearts, and we struggle deeply with emotional and spiritual health. We can cling to the pain and to excuses, or we can bury them deep, hoping they'll never be discovered. But they will. Actually, they already have been. God knows them and wants you to live victoriously. Left undiagnosed, these wounds change and cut our ministry stride to protect us from the pain. Some of the people I work with have shared with me what others might call a wounded heart. Emotional and spiritual growth is a struggle. Often, though our wound is long in the past, we still believe a set of lies that bind us. We hurt or have been hurt, so we try to numb the pain through a variety of addictions. We escape from painful reality through excessive behavior. Pornography, drugs, internet gaming, social media, OCD behaviors, illicit sex, and even achievement or busyness are ways we try to forget, cope, or overcome. The real problem is a wounded heart. No matter how much we work to modify, suppress, drown, or medicate wounds, we need a renovation of heart. We need to cry out to Jesus, confess where we've tried to be our own Savior, and allow Him to rule in all corners of our hearts. To finish this section, I'd like to suggest a heart review that goes back to the running image at the beginning of this section. Start with asking God to help you look clearly at your heart. Consider sitting with a trusted friend conversation partner, or a mentor, and then use these questions as a review. Are the wounds you find like blisters? Do you need to look for small things that have created tender places? Are the wounds like pulled muscles requiring some rest time and then the sole equivalent of a physical therapist? Are the wounds like fractures that need to be examined and set by a professional? Are the wounds catastrophic, needing immediate intervention? One final thought about wounds. Sometimes our wounds have been healed, leaving only scars. The scar can remind of the old injury, or it can remind us of the touch of the healer. Break free. God often wants to speak to us in retrospect. Parker Palmer shares a discerning practice of asking, What is your life trying to say to you? Once, when I was in London, I met my longtime friend, Christian, from Eastern Europe, and we chatted about his work there. I could tell he was evaluating his job, and he gave off an air of resignation that he was stuck. Though in his early 40s, he said, you don't understand what it's like here. People get in their lane, and then they just stay. His eyes drooped as he tried to smile a bit to assure me he was okay. The problem with looking into our past is that we need wisdom. And sometimes God wants to take us out of our lane and move us into new possibilities. Too often we talk about possibilities and make them up ourselves. I'm talking about burning bush moments when God wants to take what He's been doing in our lives to this point and propel us forward to something beyond what we can take claim for on our own. What if our past is affecting our present and future more than we care to admit? I've been at this work of developing leaders too long to let this chapter close without one more moment to consider this. I've met enough leaders who are still operating in ways they can trace back to insecurity, hurt, unmet needs, lies they believe, or incidents they endured. It's time to break free. It's time to see yourself as God sees you. And it's time to step up to a new maturity in the present for the sake of your community. We've been called to shepherd others and lead. Let's be committed to Christ and to our best work in response to His calling. Let's lead forward with courage and conviction. For greater awareness, Number 1. What is one experience from your past that now influences a behavior in the present? Is this a good behavior or one that needs to change? You may want to pick something small rather than something traumatic. Number 2. What's one thing from your past that you need to let go of and open your grip, giving it all to God? Like Moses, can you lay down your staff if God asks you to? What would that look like in your life? Number three, take some time for this exercise. In what ways has your heart been wounded? How has it healed? How has it not healed fully? How did you deal with that? How will you let God heal it? Number four, as you think about how you thought and behaved in middle school and your present interactions with others, do you think you are socially mature? What has helped you be this way? Can you teach and show others this way of life? How would you go about that? And number five, what behaviors and attitudes are you making excuses for right now? Your excuses could be to God, to others, or even to yourself. What are the excuses you are making? What will it take to make the change that needs to be made?